other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. And the time is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Historian Ron Epps' new book, Creating Acadia National Park, focuses on the life and the life's work of George Bucknam Dorr. He tells the remarkable um, story of the relationship of Dorr, Charles W. Eliot of Harvard University, and John D. Rockefeller Jr. that led to the founding of Acadia. And we're very pleased to have um, Ron Epp with us in the studio with us. Good morning and welcome to you, Ron. Good morning to you as well. And um, um, Ron is joined by Maureen Fournier, who is a ranger with Acadia National Park. And Maureen, um, one of her uh, pieces of work is um, an interpretive program on um, Mr. Doerr's family home. And uh, we're glad to have you with us as well, Maureen. Thanks, Ron. Nice to be here. So um, we'll get started perhaps with each of you giving a little bit of, of, the, of what brought you to Acadia and the story of, of uh, George Doerr, starting with Ron Epp. What, what led you to um, this, this interest? I think like many men, our wives lead us places. <laughs> As you were framing the question, that's what I thought. Um, Elizabeth had visited Maine with her family as a child, uh, repeatedly. And so um, she did not get me here immediately after marriage, but after our return from less than blissful days in Memphis, Tennessee, um, we moved to New England in 1985. And within a year, we were up here. Mm. And the answer to the question is, it was the place that made the difference. Mm. I mean, it, the beauty of the place, the historical depth of the place, um, and the people that I encountered, that we encountered. Um, so we treated it mostly as a, as a place to hike, to explore, um, knowing quite early in the process that at one time there were 250 miles of trails. Um, that would take quite a while to whet our appetite. And so we continue to go and come back and ask questions because as a philosopher, this just comes second nature, perhaps first nature to me. And the information that I received was incomplete, sometimes silly, sometimes um, right on the mark. But one question led to another and the outcome led me to Massachusetts. And, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. But let me um, bring Maureen into it. And, and you have a similar um, very, love of hiking. Very similar story. Love of hiking, mm -hmm. yes. And also my spouse and I found this island, having lived in Gardner for 25 years. 
and came up here regularly with the kids and loved to hike. So um, fell in love with the island. Um, but the other thing we have in common, I think, is our curiosity about how the island uh, history came about and the park's history. And we were curious about the foundation um, and just con continued asking questions. And that's what led me to to meet Ron mm. here. Um, because you had been asked to do a program. I had on been asked Old to Farm, do a program the, yeah. about five years ago, um, leading our visitors um, through Compass Harbor, which is where Mr. Doerr's old farm estate was located. And I was very happy to be asked and to do this program. It's still going on. And when doing the research <coughs> to um, <coughs> to conduct the program. I was seeing Ron's name everywhere. And then he graciously um, accepted my request to meet him. And so I, <clears throat> I met him and his wife, mm -hmm. uh, and got um, a lot of information from him. And it's still a question and answer period going on between us. I think us. I trugged files up here. Oh, you, you, he he had you. files in his hotel room. Photographs and, and, and the like. Exactly. And <laughs> uh, and said to me, Maureen, go through them, take your time, whatever you want, uh, I'll make copies of. And this was a treasure chest of information. Uh, there were files all over the hotel room <laughs> and I knew I didn't have enough time to go through all of them at that point but that was the beginning Great. of a, a relationship with with, with Ron mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and uh, Ron Epp what what you said led you to Massachusetts this this series of questions and tell us a little bit more about why Massachusetts fits into this story about a place in Maine some individuals who have already read the book come to me now and say, I see why you wrote that book. Hmm. You were in pursuit of philosophy. And <laughs> once you found out that Dorr had connections to Harvard and to Dr. Eliot and to William James and the beginnings of American philosophy there, that, that's, that's really where you were headed from the start, right? No. That was a surprise. That was a bonus. Um, but when I got answers to questions about Mr. Doerr's wife before 1880, and even perhaps equally be between 1880 and 1901 when the trustees were formed, there was a sense of, we don't know. Well, why don't you know? Why haven't you inquired? And some of those questions were directed at the Park Service itself. And well, shortage of staff, present priorities, all those sorts of things enter into it. So I thought, well, here I am in Connecticut. Massachusetts is my next door. I don't need to have my arm twisted to go to Harvard University and start conversations with archivists, nor do I need any encouragement to go to the Massachusetts Historical Society where Doors' paternal grandfather's family history is located in more than 40 file boxes of material, nor to the New England Historic and Genealogical Society that had the door papers. So Massachusetts became more of a locus of information about Mr. Door 
than what was available up on Mount Desert Island. And there was a wonderful, um, I recount this in the book, there was this wonderful um, address delivered, I think, back in 2007 at a Friends of Acadia-sponsored event in Northeast Harbor, um, where they invited the, the chaplain of Harvard University to come and talk to them about the legacy of Dr. Elliot. And one remark that he made that just resonated with me at that time and still was that Harvard knows little about the Elliot of Mount Desert Island, and Mount Desert Island knows little about Dr. Elliot of Harvard. Mm. And I thought that was going to be a theme, a dominating theme, uh, the conjunction of Venn diagrams that's going to form the core of this book to try to start a conversation between those two communities. And the the way in which I tried to do that was to position Dr. Elliot's son, Charles Elliot, the landscape architect, as <clears throat> the individual whose life was cut short, but nonetheless was able to start the Massachusetts trustees, out of which was spawned, due to Dr. Elliot, um, the Hancock County Trustees of Public Reservations. So the stories in these family histories were so rich, so detailed. The letters that, the letter writing that became as much a form of communication as you and I talking this morning, um, they were so rich in their intimacy and in the maturity of, <clears throat> of George's paternal grandfather and talking about his daughters and his sons and what he wished for them and his tolerance of their deviation from his life plan for them that I realized that I could I could have written a George before MDI and a George after MDI because the content was so rich sure. but you had to move on yep. and the book was already long in gestation <laughs> what what led uh, George Dore to Mount Desert Island he was part of of what uh, we come to call the rusticators who came to the island what what were the things that uh, were they the same things that attract, attracted you and Maureen to to um, like hiking there were what, what were some of the factors that led rusticators to Mount Desert Island. Well, Maureen, if it was if it was hiking, that was the dominant force to get us here. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't the case with Mr. Dora's family. It was exposure to the Hudson River School painters. It was exposure to certain um, books and magazines that were beginning to be published at that time that displayed Mount Desert Island and the scenic wonders. And it was the, the beauty of the place that pulled them out. Mm. A secondary theme was they were pulled that way because they were also not running away, but leaving behind a lot of the existing and developing conditions of Boston as an urban environment. And what I mean is the heat of the summer, the congestion of the population, the growth of diverse ethnicities, um, this was a place to go and be restored, to be recreated, mm -hmm. as we use the word in recreation these mm -hmm. days. And mm -hmm. you could probably still say that about our visitors today. Mm -hmm. um, most of our visitors are coming from high urban areas, um, seeking that beauty of the natural landscape. 
much like George and his family were. Mm. So um, then you begin, to, I'm going to jump forward because we've got so much to, to cover. Um, you talk about a um, relationship um, between th- these three men, uh, Charles W. Ellett, the president of, of Harvard University, George B. Dorr, and John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Tell us a little about the roles that they each played in the creation of Acadia National Park because they were all attracted by some of the same things. Somehow they figured out, oh, we need this philosophy of conservation um, that you write so well about in the book. I'm just thinking of the the review of the book that Earl Brecklin wrote for the Mount Desert Islander. And he repeated a phrase that other people have used. This is no accusation of plagiarism. It's just a, a commonplace of describing the three men as the visionary being Dr. Elliot of Harvard, that Dora was the executor, the action man, Franklin Roosevelt's action and action now and mm-hmm. persistent action over time, and that John D. Rockefeller Jr. then added money in order to go and keep a movement going as Dr. Elliot was moving into his final years of life. Um, it is a nice kind of structure to go and hang those three people on, but the story is far more complicated for all of them because they weren't just unifocal individuals. They were bringing a whole, a lot of baggage with them. Good baggage. Good baggage, <laughs> good baggage with them to, um, to complement one another. And, and they were each of different generations, right? Yes. They weren't, you know, they weren't peers in that sense. No, you can think of them essentially as separated by roughly 20 years in terms of the time of the birth, 1830s, 1850s, and then in the 1870s. So at times I think of grandfather, father, and son in terms of a a relationship. And I think to some extent their behavior toward one another at times reveals that sort of thing, even though when the three of them come together in a tight way, Dr. Elliot, this would be around 1910 to 1913 when the IRI is coming into being for, for the Rockefeller family. And at that time, Dr. Elliot is in his 80s. Dr. Um, Elliot, excuse me, George Dorr is in his 60s. And the young man is Mr. Rockefeller still. Um, but they didn't treat each other in that kind of family way, even though there were all the kind of all these intimacies that are revealed in the letters that show the kind of depth of their of the complexity of their relationship they were each individuals self-directed self-determined confident in what they wanted to do probably all tinged with at least some degree of arrogance um as ben hadley says when he writes to the national park service the month after door dies and in very touching terms, does insert that word arrogance about Doors convictions, shall mm. we put it. And those um, convictions were to take a model, as you pointed out, from Massachusetts and bring it to Hancock County for the protection or the preservation of land. Tell us a little bit about that and the, and the connection there. Well, amplify this for me, Maureen. Um, Old Farm Mm -hmm. was finished in 1880. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so from 1880 to 1944, when George Dorr died, there was roughly 65 years of his life that he was that was spent on that property in that house. Where, 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 where? I lost my train of thought. Well, in terms of the Hancock County Trustees for Pres oh, Reservation, um, that was the model that they were using to protect land. Eventually, it became a national park. But where did it start? As Dora says, the idea of a national park started in Old, Old Farm. Farm. It had in, in the gardens that were being developed and the extension of those gardens into what he saw as necessarily public property. He does talk about the Salem roots, where his family came from, of that horticultural, botanical bent that was a part of his, his nature. But it was <clears throat> the death of Dr. Elliot's son um, in Hartford of, at 37 years of age that essentially kick-started Dr. Elliot to look at his son's vast um, documentation of the career of a landscape architect and to say, I, I want to memorialize my son. So mm. he wrote this this biography running 700 pages. And then at the same time that that was about to be published, he came to Mount Desert Island, having visited here for two decades, having a house in Northeast Harbor and called a meeting in Seal Harbor and got buy-in from roughly a dozen local individuals as well as summer people to create public land. And the reason why that public land movement was so necessary was the fragmentation of Mount Desert Island that was taking place as individuals were buying up property. Then after they had their piece, oftentimes of the shoreline, if a companion piece was available or for sale, they would buy that, but it locked up the island. Mm -hmm. And signs had been posted, private land. And so the, the model of these men, Elliot and Dora in particular, who had traveled throughout Europe and spent a lot of time in England and were used to commons and were used to being able to walk across a farm through a gate into another farm and go on and on and on, mile after mile. That idea was then applied to Maine, and the trustees were formed and, um, after a somewhat slow start, got the movement going. Mm. You're listening to Talk of the Towns. Our guest this morning is Ron Epp, author, historian, philosopher, um, and, and the author of Creating Acadia National Park, the new biography of George B. Dorr, uh, published by Friends of Acadia. And uh, he's joined by Maureen Fournier, who's a ranger at Acadia National Park seasonally. And her uh, program, called Missing Mansion, is about the Dorr family home. Maureen, coming back to you, um, tell us a little bit about what you learned about Old Farm and its, mm. its role in George George's life. Well, I also want to mention a little bit more about Missing Mansions program. And it's still going on, um, will be this season as well. It's a very popular program. So if visitors coming to Acadia National Park would like to learn more about George Dorr, um, in addition to reading Ron's book, um, I would suggest... Um, taking a look at our program outline for the for the season. It's a one and a half hour program. 
It will lead you onto the the um, the estate of George Door. Um, the estate is no longer there. That is why it's called Missing Mansion. But the foundation is there, and so. Um, upon the foundation of his estate, you can also learn more about the door story. Um, and it's a wonderful way to get engaged with the, the history of the park. And it's a beautiful area, um, not often traveled and visited. Um, <clears throat> but we're hoping that um, people who are especially interested in the history of the park will, will come and visit that area. So is your, is your research um, using some of Ron, Ron Epps' material and your own research, what were some of the things that you really wanted to tell visitors about Old Farm? Well, most of our visitors would come to the program not ever having heard <clears throat> the name of George Dorr. And so that was the first thing. You had to introduce the story and the man. Mm. Um, why were we here? What is this place? And the, most people... Most of our visitors, I would say, don't even know that Compass Harbor exists or Old Farm exists. So number one, we were introducing the story and the man. The other thing, people would hear anecdotal stories about George Dorr. Did he really swim in the ocean every day? <laughs> um, which was commonly heard. What happened to the, to the house? Did it burn in the 1947 fire? Those were... Um, just a few of the many common questions. People who had semi-introduction to the man. Um, was he blind when he died? Was he? Did he really give up all his money mm. for the park? Who was he? Why is the mountain named after him? So uh, there was a variety of visitors that came, some with a little bit of history, but not totally accurate history. Um, and that's why, uh, in order to be prepared for the program, we needed the research, the primary sources. And that's when I first met Ron, and uh, because his name was written on everything that I saw in, in delving into the research and preparing for the program. So uh, that was the value Great, right great. there. Well, um, Ron Epp, the, the, the notion of writing a book um, as you began to get in, involved um, must have been a little daunting. Um, but you had produced an outline, and you were trying to find a publisher. Um, tell us about Friends of Acadia and that, that magic moment when they agreed to say, yeah, I think this is of interest to us and we might be able to do it in time for the centennial. There's one individual who kind of brought together certain thoughts that were in my head, but I had not merged them. Mm. Um, and it's a fellow by the name of Jay Gershman, who is a, uh, a retirement planner, who is a financial advisor in West Hartford, Connecticut. And Elizabeth and I had used his services for the last 20 years or so. And so we were used to talking to Jay about um, how's the book doing, how's your career progressing and the like. And I said to him on one occasion that... I had gone to quite a few academic publishers, and they did not see a market for this. And I would explain to them about the two and a half million people who came to the park every year, many of them going to the visitor center and bookstores and the like. And I thought there indeed was a market for a biography 
none having been written to this time. And Jay understood all that and understood my frustration when I was nearing completion of the book and getting rejection letters from, from publishers that I thought would snap at this. But I was also seeing what was happening to publishing in general, and that is that there there were fewer people who wanted to read a paper book that were reading material online, that they were that were ordering copies from Amazon, that were producing their own publications. And Jay said, tell me more about this, this group you're a part of, this Friends of Acadia. And so I explained that to him, and he said, so you've been a member of this group for 20, 25 years? I said, yeah. And he said, well, have you ever pitched it to them? <laughs> and I said the naive thing about, well, they know what's going on. And he said, but you need a proposal. <laughs> and do you know anyone who's on the board? And I said, well, I know Jack Russell and Bill Horner and Cookie. And he said, you know these people. They know your work. Why don't you draft a proposal and take it to them? And so I said, duh. <laughs> I felt... And so I was back in school again, mm. and I pitched it to Jack. He read the manuscript and got excited about it, and one thing led to another, and we wrote a memorandum of understanding about 18 months ago or so now. And at that time, I met um, Amy Beale Church, who would be my editor, and formed this this bond and this relationship that um, was as as deep in a short period of time as anything I've known with the exception perhaps of my wife. Mm. And um, it's our book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's my book, it's Maureen's book, it's Amy's book. It's a book that came, came from many individuals who were both local people as well as people from away, just like Acadia came about in the same sort of way. Mm -hmm. So the the notion of, of doing research, and, and I understand you had pretty much your, your book outlined and perhaps a, a draft written, yeah. and then you began to discover new material. And we have a guest uh, who will join us by phone now, Josh Torrance of the Woodlawn Museum of Ellsworth. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Josh. Oh, thank you, Ron. And um, you have uh, a number of connections, but first of all, tell us a little bit about Woodlawn and its its connection to our story today. Absolutely. So, uh, Woodlawn, uh, owned by the the descendants of the of Colonel John Black um, here in Ellsworth, has a connection to the park because it is owned by the Hancock County Trustees of Public Reservations, whom you have mentioned already in the program, the group that Charles Elliott formed. And the connection between the Black family and the members of the Hancock County Trustees of Public Reservations is Judge Peters. Uh, John A. Peters uh, was considered to be Ellsworth's first and perhaps finest citizen. Uh, he lived uh, just down the road from the Black Mansion and uh, had a, a long and varied career, but uh, including as uh, serving as a U.S. House of Representative for the 3rd District, um, and then later a federal district court judge, a uh, position he held in, until 1946. Judge Peters was uh, the last member of the Black family's cousin and the executor of uh, Nixon Black's will. So they were a, a very close family. And uh, perhaps was the, the link that uh, 
got the the Woodlawn property transferred to the Hancock County Trustees of Public Preservation. He was also the executor of um, the will of George Bedore. So um, tell us about your connection with Ron Epp and, and um, the discovery of some of these papers. So uh, I met Ron shortly, probably shortly after starting at Woodlawn. Um, yes, you did. We did. So my thesis uh, for my, my graduate work from the Cooperstown graduate program was to organize and write a history of the Hancock County trustees uh, as it related to their involvement at Woodlawn. Mm-hmm. And that meant me archiving the uh, vast amount of archival uh, material we have on the work of the trustees from 1901 on. And in doing that work, uh, I connected with Ron, and I think Ron probably saw my thesis, and we have just for almost now 16 years had a uh, correspondence and a friendship and an interest in the, in the trustees. Mm. And Ron, what, why don't you talk a little bit about your, your discovery um, and, and how you began to see that there were caches of information, so historical data, that you hadn't realized existed and that then need, needed to be brought into your book in some way? Well, early in the process with Josh, Josh opened up everything at Woodlawn, gave me a copy of his thesis, which I read. Um, and Josh, by the way, you still need to go and correct the Elliot spelling to from two L's to one. <laughs> um, but I mined that resource early. And then I remember after I had a rough draft of the book, I got this phone call from Josh one day, all excited because he had news about a hidden treasure. And Josh, why don't you tell it firsthand, please? Sure. So it was in 2008. Uh, it was actually in August of 2008. And um, right in the midst of a very uh, grueling but exciting antique show that we do here, that we got wind of the fact that judges, Judge Peter's papers still existed and that they were at a local law firm uh, on the third floor of a, of a building Um kind of in a heap in a corner, they were there, they were um, available for us to take a look at. And, of course, I was very excited because the last member of the Black family, George Nixon Black, or Nixon, as his friends and family called him, left very little archival material. And so that we could find some documentation about Nixon and his relationship with Judge Peters was super exciting. And in doing the preliminary look through of that um, cache of papers, uh, you know, the connection with George Doerr came, and I just got very excited and called Ron, and I think it was, what, maybe a month later, Ron was up uh, with us, and we spent a lot of time on the third floor of a building going through a lot of exciting papers. And you remember the particulars, Josh, that the contractor, this is my recollection, that the contractor working on that roof was also the contractor at Woodlawn? Yes. And both of your roofs were open, and he looked down and saw that archive 
saw that office, and then that was communicated to you, and you came down the street and began to work with the attorneys there in order to secure admission to that archive for the both of us. Um, Thank goodness for contractors (laughs) and their sharing of information. That's great. That's great. Well, Josh, um, as you think about um, your role at the Hancock County Trustees for Public Reservations as the owner of of Woodlawn, um, what what lessons do we um, find today about that early work? What would you um, advise our listeners that is still relevant today? Well, I guess I would reflect uh, in a way in what Ron was commenting earlier about the three individuals who, you know, formed this core group to make Acadia happen, um, Charles Elliott, Dorr, and Rockefeller. Um, it, I'm always reminded that if you have a great vision and a great idea, People will come to help make it happen, in this case, Dora, and then the funding that you need, in this case, Rockefeller, will come along. So I would, I think one of the lessons that I, I always gain is when I think about the, the rich legacy of the trustees is that we all have to remember to keep our dreams alive and keep dreaming and keep having big visions and big plans because, you know, a lot of them do happen. And in our case, happily here in Down East Maine, uh, it not only did it happen, but it thrived and it grew. And it all started because someone dared to dream and dared to um, to, to, to expound upon a, a larger vision. Uh, and I think that's really exciting. I, I'll just quickly read a quote from the 1939 history of the trustees. Um, it's a little forward by a man named Edward Moses. And he said, the trustees started something which has gone from coast the coast of Maine to the Shenandoah Valley, over the Great Smokies as far west as California. For my part, I can think of no such triumphant march of an idea in the history of this country. And I think what he's talking about there, of course, is land conservation. And I think that's just a wonderful kind of summary of the trustees' work, that they inspired others to do great work beyond Acadia. Mm. Well, Josh, thanks so much for being with us and for your conservation of history um, there at the Woodlawn Museum. Well, and, and thanks to Ron, who has, uh, um, you know, I think everyone in our community owes Ron up a great deal of uh, thanks and admiration to, to document this important history. Great. Well, thanks Thank for you, being with us. Thank you. Josh Torrance, the uh, director of the Woodlawn Museum and the Black House there in Ellsworth. And you're tuned to WERU's Talk of the Towns. Um, we're speaking about the creation of Acadia National Park, a new book, um, uh, the biography of George B. Doerr with Ron Epp, the author, and with Maureen Fournier here in the studio. She's a ranger uh, with Acadia National Park and um, the, uh, kind of the founder of the Mission Missing Mansion program. I'll open up our phone lines now, so if you've got a question or a comment or you're experience in Acadia or with history or philosophy, please give us a call 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-9378. Well, Ron, um, the, the, the story is great, but Maureen, you've, you've got a, a piece of, of this story in your introduction um, about the beehive and mm-hmm. how um, inspiring people to get outside mm-hmm. is not just to appreciate uh, scenery, but it's something that happens in inside. Could you tell the story or introduce the story and then read Certainly. that little section of the book about the beehive? Well, let me preface it a little bit by saying one of the 
my most memorable events um, that is recounted again in your book, Ron, is of the day in 1916 at the Sertimont, um ceremony celebrating its inception at the Building of the Arts. And Charles Eliot um, spoke very eloquently at the at this ceremony, and he addressed this uh, the audience by saying, "The reason we are all here is for the lovers of hmm. the lovers of this island." He called them, hmm. and for the future lovers of this island. And I grabbed hold of that expression. And I thought, you know, we are the future lovers of this island. Um, and that led me to believe all the, uh, or to, to recount the stories of, of some of the other lovers of the island that I have met working at the Village Green in downtown Bar Harbor. And one of them was, well, there are a few that I mentioned in the foreword, but one of them is a little girl named Hannah. And I think as the original um, speakers at this ceremony in 1916 were talking about the lovers of the island, we're still seeing lovers of the island. Um, and so let me just find that page. X-I-I-I. I, yeah. Yep. Okay, thanks. Um I'll mention a couple of others as well. It's in the paragraph. Okay. In my work as ranger at the Village Green Information Center, I have met many extraordinary new lovers who have been changed by Acadia and who in turn have changed me. I especially remember Heiko, a 50-year-old German who spent one spring and early summer hiking the Appalachian Trail. Upon his completion of this trek, he arrived on Mount Desert Island, planning to stay for just one week. Because of Acadia's natural beauty and its incomparable trails, Heiko ended up staying six weeks each day asking for hiking recommendations until he finished every trail. I remember Richard, a septuagenarian from Massachusetts married 49 years to his lovely wife. Each year, they vacationed and camped in Acadia together. Richard lost his wife a couple of years ago, but he faithfully returns to this island retreat each summer, camping still, hiking always, and reliving memories with his wife in each footstep he takes. And often, I remember 10-year-old Hannah. She walked into the village green with her family one day last summer with a look of fear and trepidation and the need to be encouraged to hike the beehive. Everybody in my family has climbed the beehive, and I'm the only one who hasn't. I'm not sure I can, but I really want to. And after a long discussion and a look to her parents for support, Hannah boldly declared she was going to climb it that afternoon. And she left with her family to do just that, promising to come back and leave me a note. I have that thank you note still, and the photograph of a beautiful young girl who conquered her fear that day. And she is one of the newest generations of new lovers of this park. <laughs> what a great story. And I'm sure that every ranger who works in the park and every person connected um, with that summer visitor experience um, will recognize that. We have so. a couple of phone calls. Um, we'll take one and then we'll um, take another. But go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, go ahead. Is that me? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have two comments, and I think they're almost at uh, odds with each other. But one uh, concerns the out of Acadia preservation, uh, you know, as we move down east 
and I know that there's there's a Downey's conservation uh, organization, but I do see that people own the points of land in much the way that you described earlier. Uh, that's one comment, and uh, the other one is that there's a whole uh, new history that's coming upon us with rising sea levels with an expectation that in 10 to 20 years we could see 10 feet of sea rise, which could significantly change the way everything looks and what we should plan for. You know, what will those points of land and these pristine places look like after 2,000 years of st- stable uh, sea level suddenly when it changes? I can take my comments up here. Great, great. Thanks so much for your call. I'm going to take the other call just to um, because that person has been waiting a while. No, that person is hung up. So, again, our phone numbers are 1-866-625-9378. So, Ron, does does Acadia's story uh, spawn um, uh, uh, models that we can still use today? The land trust movement, for instance, the uh, the philosophy of the land trust movement started there in Massachusetts. But uh, we are, certainly have um, uh, Frenchman's Bay Conservancy down east. We have a number of other conservancies working. Oh, if you look at the land trust movement, um, not just conservation in general, but the land trust movement, there's over a thousand organizations. Most of them are the product of or a subset within environmentalism and have been created since 1950s, 1960s. Um, The land conservation movement was slow to get going. Um, It had to deal with the issues involving the First and the Second World Wars. Um, But it, it has seeded an immense number of organizations. One thing that I'd like to flash back to for, for just a moment is, coming off of what Maureen said, was there's, a, there's an element of elitism that is a, a product of Mr. Doerr's generation and the like. And when, I, when the remark was made by the caller about um, how property was acquired because of a desire to open this up to the public, it was owners of land who gave the land <laughs> to do that, not just trying to acquire parcels that were available at a relatively inexpensive life, um, price because it was on undesirable proper, property. And it was men like Judge Peters and the D.Z. Lynham firm in Bar Harbor that essentially moved this forward. So it, from its inception, it was local and away people that joined together, and it's the local people that too often times and their contributions have not received the kind of adequate attention that I hope my book brings to them. It does. And the, the comment before we take some other calls about uh, climate change and rising sea levels, um, how, how do we think about uh, protection of land um, when it changes? Is there a way to think about that? Thank, thank goodness we have mountains. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no precedent in Doerr's generation for the phenomena that we're, that we're facing now. Um, he was mostly concerned about the threats to land that would come from human intervention. Um, in a way, climate change is exactly that sort of thing, but unforeseen in his generation. 
how we're going to to deal with this, um, I don't want to say we don't know. I think we know some of the steps that need to be taken absolutely. It's do we have the will and the fortitude to carry it off over successive generations because there's no quick fix. Let's take a a couple of other phone calls. Go ahead first with your question or comment. Give us your name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead. This is Ivor. Am I on? Yes, go ahead. Thanks, Ivor. Okay, I'm calling from uh, Swans Island, and I just wanted to say that um, uh, we're celebrating the 100th uh, anniversary of Acadia, and I don't think people know what uh, a boon it is to the area, uh, to the to the place that it's in, and I, I hope that uh, the uh, northern Maine uh, National Park proposal gets the attention that people realize that you know it could it could really be an enormous uh, boon to that area and bring it back from uh, financial collapse. Really, great. Thanks. But I just wanted to say that. Okay, thanks, Ivor. Uh, Ron, you write about um, early um, thoughts about a national park in in northern Maine. Um, George Dorr uh, focused his efforts uh, in Acadia, but uh, he was certainly aware that there were um, interests in in northern Maine as well. Yes, in fact, when the idea was first broached as early as about the time that the park was coming into being, Acadia. the idea, yeah. the, uh, the idea of a companion park um, in the vicinity of Katahdin was put forward. Now, one might expect, you know, you've just given birth to this park and all of a sudden something else looms on the horizon. It could be interpreted competitively. I mean, we live in this capitalistic culture and that sort of response seems to be anticipated. What does Dorr do? He writes a letter to the Boston Herald celebrating the idea, recognizing that he's got on Mount Desert Island, a limited amount of landscape to work with. It was never the intention of the park founders to take over the whole island. They wanted, as with Adirondack Park, to have this this unusual mix of residential people and the park and the intermingling that would take place. So <clears throat> I would I would say Dorr would be supportive of what we're looking at today with the Northwoods Project. And um, just keep in mind that the economic issues that are so vital today were not key issues in the early development of this park. Mm. It wasn't that George did not pitch to the community the idea that the park is going to be good for all of you because of jobs and increased property values and all the rest of that. That idea really got moving when the consequences of bringing in the Civilians Conservation Corps um, really took hold in the 1930s. And people, at the same time as saw growth taking place, also were seeing the old estates slowly weathering and dying. Mm. And now they had a new issue. We do have another call. Um, If you'd give us your first name and town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. This is Frank in Lemoyne. Hi, Frank. Yeah, hi. This is appropriate today. This is the 46th anniversary of guess what? Earth Day. There you go. Uh, 
good show, Ron. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think um, in many ways we could look back on, on the trustees of public f reservations as one of those first um, environmental uh, kind of awarenesses that then got taken up by uh, Teddy Roosevelt and then um, Franklin Roosevelt. And we see a, a national movement, and the national parks are also celebrating their 100th anniversary. And yesterday was John Muir's birthday. Right, so. right. So um, we've got uh, only about 10 minutes left. Um, uh, maybe I'll start with this. This you've already addressed the notion that it was just summer. The myth that it was just summer residents that uh, Judge um, uh, Deasy and uh, uh, Judge Peters were actively involved, and their their firms were really the the, the mechanism by which all the land transfers took place. They were key to the success of these these parks. I'm going to uh, lead you to another um, uh, quote you've said um, about uh, Elliot Dorr and Rockefeller. Solitary self-examination and life experienced transformed their elitist social inheritances into an appreciation of conservation as a vehicle for promoting democratic values. That's a really powerful statement. Could you kind of unpack that for us a little bit to help us see um, the translation of that in, in uh, the story of Acadia? I guess my initial reaction is that it's been so much a part of me and the writing of the book that it assumes the character of self-evidency. <laughs> and I know that's not the case with somebody who, that, are, that hears this on the first time. But I think that's the uniqueness of this, this trinity, this, what, what Judith Goldstein has called this triumvirate, mm. uh, namely that they were men of <clears throat> privilege um, who still recognized that life was not just about them. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a humility factor that runs through the three of them. And I know at times it's difficult to associate individuals of stature with even retaining a degree of humility, but that humility was such that what they recognized that what they loved wasn't just a product of their education, their class, their family histories, that this was some this was land. This was a piece of the North Atlantic um, that anyone could appreciate if only we could promote it and encourage people to make the journey to get here. Mm. And what hasn't been mentioned yet is how the automobile was literally the vehicle by which this park grew. And um, Bill Horner has done quite a bit in Chebacco, Mount Desert Island Historical Society Journal, recounting the tale of automobile wars on the island and the prosperity that came with that, as well as some of the dangers and inconveniences and pollution factors and all the rest of it. But this intermingling of these, these three individuals for the sake of the public good, making something available to anyone regardless of their social standing, their economic status, their ethnicity, or whatever, was just, for them, self-evident as well. Mm. Now, if you say, how did they make that leap? How did they step outside their generation to acquire that I think because they were experienced men of the world and they saw the tremendous change that the Industrial Revolution had spawned and knew that 
history could take them in several different directions. And the one that was most favorable was the greatest good for the greatest number. Mm. And um, maybe we can come back to that. Each of them had experience in Europe. So they had seen um, another another way of looking at that. Yes. But let's come back to that just after a phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment. Give us your first name and town you're calling from. Yes, it's Catherine from Appleton. And um, my grandmother, uh, Catherine Angel, you may have heard of her in Seal Harbor, along with her husband, James Angel. They were very involved in the Acadia National Park with mm. Rockefeller. But she had a premonition um, that the uh, of the fire... Uh, it's a well-known story in our in our family because she's very psychic. But um, getting back to what I'm calling about is um, the UN is um, a lot of our, uh, our national parks, forests, lakes, and wildlands are being turned over to the UN control. And in fact, there is a sign which I've read is there. I haven't seen it in front of the Smoky uh, Mountains National Preserve. It, it now says an international biosphere reserve. Um, what do you know about uh, Acadian National Park in, in that regard? Well, thank you for your your question. I'm not sure any of us have any response to that, but, Ron, the, the, this is an international um, movement, but it isn't controlled by the U.N. Pe- people are preserving land all across the world. The, if I can make a little bit of a historical digression, one, <clears throat> at the time that our national parks were kind of developing from a kind of exclusive set of preserves out in the western part of the United States and crossing the Mississippi and Acadia becoming the first national park east of the Mississippi. George Dorr was already making use of that European experience by translating articles um, having to do with the establishment of the first national parks in Italy. A bruzy by the name, uh, the one he initially translated. That was, at that time, or first 10, 15 years of the 20th century, the national park movement was starting to take hold in Europe, in the Netherlands, in Italy, later in France. And what you have is the kind of geographic fragmentation by national, national borders of, the, of national park systems. Over the last hundred years, the proliferation of national parks has been global. There are even global organizations that essentially try to pull together common threads that bind us all together in terms of our national park movements. I know of no organization that is trying to go and diminish the national park part of the national park system for the sake of something global. Um, our national park system was slow to get involved in the global movement, but nonetheless, um, each nation is trying its best to kind of preserve what is distinctive to that nation. Um, and so what you were alluding to um, strikes me as um, not something affecting the national park in Maine, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We're about ready to wrap up, so I'm beginning to think about um, how you, we might conclude this. Maureen, one of the things is that, that um, Mr. Doerr was one of the first interpreters of the National Park. And, and what approaches, do you suppose, inspired mm-hmm. him to, to think of himself as an interpreter of what he was experiencing? Well, I go back to what Ron had mentioned um, it, 
before about these three men coming from their backgrounds. Um, Mr. Dorr was Boston Brahmin, yet he still had that roll-up-your-sleeves kind of work approach, and that's how he got things done. Um, but I also... Um, I also describe, in using adjectives of Mr. Door, everything seems to begin with the letter P. <laughs> and I've got perseverance and patience and passion and persistence Persist. and... Puck. Yes. <laughs> and um, protector, preservationist. Mm. And I, I could go on and on. There's so many P mm. words attached to him mm. that just come into my mind. Mm. And... Um, it's up to us also to carry on mm -hmm. that interpretive spirit of his, to carry on with what he gave us, protect more, become patient and persistent and mm -hmm. passionate about it. I'm, um, I love this park. I love Acadia National Park. Uh, and I want others to love it as well. And... I think in order to love something or become intimate with something, I believe that you have to know it and you have to explore it and dive into it. And that's part and, of the role of the interpreter. And that's the role of right. interpreter and contributor. And well Ron, said. Ron, well said. The, uh, you, your hope is that um, future historians, present historians, will take up um, some of the things that you've started. Um, tell us a little bit more about what your hopes are for those um, new researchers. Even though you complete a biography, you, you are aware of the deficiencies in it, the things that you did not pursue in the middle and early stages that you recognize when you're completing a work. That's the task of a new generation of scholars, um, historians and others. Um, and as long as some of us are alive where we can point out those areas where we others need to dig more deeply, um, I think that's their challenge, to do that and to find new areas that didn't occur to me or anyone else and to take take the progress of this historicism uh, a step further. Why are we studying history? It's in order to go and make for a better future. It's not just an absorption in what is arcane. Well, thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. And like the book, um, which probably could have gone to two volumes, we could have spent <laughs> at least two more hours talking about the wonderful book. Read the end notes. Right. Maureen's going to do that second volume, not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday morning of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Ron Epp, the author of the book Creating Acadia National Park, published by Friends of Acadia, the new biography of George B. Dorr, and to Maureen Fournier, a ranger at Acadia National Park, whose uh, program um, Missing Mansion um, connects with the Dorr family, and to Josh Torrance of the Woodland Museum in Ellsworth. Thanks to those who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters, 
Thanks to Joel Mann for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport. More information at